I did just want to mention actually on the on the sanctions front, the Germans have quite an explicit bargain with the Russians that we will buy your gas and we will keep ourselves reliant on you because we don't want to repeat what happened in 1941 to 1945. That's like very very explicit. You, if you go on Gazprom's website, right, they will tell you <laughs> we have a gas for steel agreement with you because we don't want to repeat that. If the Americans, however, the Americans can do a lot. It's not just swift. They can unilaterally declare that Russian banks are off limit. There is a quite a plausible scenario where you have like a very, very different response uh, in measures, particularly from the UK or from the US, as opposed to what the European NATO powers want to do. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and director of operations, Morgan Schondelmeyer, and our guest for this week, ASI fellow and super forecaster, Jonathan Kitson. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Ukraine-Russia crisis, national insurance hikes, and woke capitalism. Over the last few weeks, we've seen mounting tensions on the border of Ukraine as Russia continues to flex its muscles and pose a threat of invasion. We'll get on to how realistic that threat is shortly. This week, the Prime Minister warned Russia that invading Ukraine would be disastrous and a painful, violent and bloody business. As the Western world tries to suss out Russia's motivations and ultimate intentions, there are still many unanswered questions. Now, going to you on this first, Johnny, I know you've been looking at the specific question of the actual likelihood of a Russian invasion. And there's obviously many different factors at play here. This is a a pretty weighty topic, and I'm sure we won't cover everything. But just from a a kind of TLDR perspective, how likely do you think it is? And what are some analysts uh, on foreign policy analysts saying on this question? So I'm unfortunately very pessimistic about this. Um, lots of people are looking at the Russian military build-up last, uh, last year, last spring, and comparing it to this one, saying it's a similar thing, that it's an example of coercive diplomacy. It's about posturing, and because these units are relatively cheap in Russian terms, because they're only being deployed on Russian soil, um, it's not actually that cost-intensive for the Russians to, to do this. Um, I think because of the particular units that are being deployed, the way that supplies are being built up and the way that um, it's very difficult to ratchet down the tensions, I think that there is quite a high chance of a significant military operation. And the unfortunate thing about military operations is although you may intend to only do something, what you may end up having to do is having to do something much larger uh, than than the Russians originally intend. Um, so if they attempt an invasion, they attempt to de- decapitate the um, Ukrainian military, they may end up having, because they get dragged into it, to end up occupying large parts of um, eastern Ukraine, more so than they already do. And some of the forces that are on the border, they are capable of, of occupation, right? It's not just uh, forces that are lined up for, uh, say, you know, a, a blitzkrieg strike and, say, deposing the president or something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, those you wouldn't necessarily want to use your frontline units to counter an insurgency, um, but they have also been calling up uh, internal military police, who you would expect to be doing more of the policing of a, an occupied force. Um, they're also calling up specific medical units, which you wouldn't really sort of bring out of um, stores unless you were, you know, certainly considering military force as an option. And they're also bringing uh, quite 
expensive um, and quite difficult, sort of like technical air defense systems and uh, land-based launchers, which they didn't bring last year. I think it's a very, very serious threat. And I think it is, it, it is different because the, the last year, the Russians didn't actually make any demands. This year, they only made demands when the, sort of, when the, when the US revealed that um, this build-up was going on and that it was an invasion for, there was a potential invasion plan in place. And the demands were so ridiculous that they were sort of projected out of hand. Um, those were demands being that not only is Ukraine never allowed to join NATO, that NATO forces in NATO countries should be withdrawn to what they were previously before 1997, and that um, effectively Russia would have a veto on military uh, exercises and deployments within NATO countries. That's just never going to happen. It's like writing a list to Santa in your in your sixties, knowing full well that Santa, unfortunately, might not be there. It's um, well, it, of course, for any young listeners of the Pin Factory, uh, we can neither confirm nor deny Santa's existence. But uh... yeah, it's very very serious. It would represent the largest um, military operation in Europe since the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, which again was a Russian military operation, um, but would also be the largest, you know, if, if they were to use, end up using force, it would be the largest uh, military operation since the Second World War, if you want to sort of take into account potential casualties and the amount of um, arms and units being in action. So if I'm I'm kind of sitting here as a, an armchair commentator and thinking, okay, I can see that there's a, a very serious buildup of, of Russian forces that seems to be beyond the kind of coercive diplomacy amount. It's certainly, if it is that, it's a very costly signal. But the first thing I would say is, well, in terms of motivation here, why is it that they would seriously consider an invasion and the risk, the sort of sanctions that uh, NATO allies uh discussing here and then going on to things about potentially turning off the gas and the economic self-harm that would cause Gazprom losing hundreds of millions in revenue every day what's actually what's the kind of underlying motivation here is Putin and the Kremlin are they acting kind of rationally by their own standards at least obviously we would say that their actions are very irrational in the grand scheme of things but is this in response to this isn't a kind of madman theory of uh, politics right it, it seems like putin has some sort of justification at least from his perspective from his perspective i think he does um or, or he certainly thinks he does so you have both the loss of um strategic depth that occurs after the soviet union fell so you now have um nato countries on russia's border which ukraine isn't a nato country but it's a big country and they're, they're quite keen uh, to have as much distance between them and what they see as you know potential hostile powers, Russia is a very very big country, and it has made great use of its strategic depth in the past. So it feels that that the Ukraine should be a part of that, you know, as sort of a bit, effectively a buffer state between it and the West. It's seen um, increasing um, military operations with NATO forces. So, for example. Since 2015, the British Army has been involved in training Ukrainian forces, but that training has stepped up, and in particular, it stepped up with American units uh, being sent over. So there is both increased training, there's now increased weapons being sent to Ukraine, um, which are defensive weapons. They're not, you know, it's very, these things would be quite very difficult to use, 
but also they increase the cost of a military operation for, for the Russians. So they feel that if this is going to continue over the next few years, every day almost it would become more difficult for them to impose a, an order via military force. Mm. Um, I think there was, a, there was a line in, the, in Ben Wallace's article about, about how Russia only shares 6% of its border with a NATO country. The Russians don't see it like that. They see it more and more and more that Ukraine is becoming a NATO country and therefore they're going to be sharing a lot more of their border with NATO mm-hmm. countries. And also, if you're, if you're looking at the Belarusian relationship with the Russians, since the protests in Belarus increased cooperation between the Russians and the Belarusians, I think actually Putin probably does see Belarus as almost as an extension of Russia and therefore... Mm-hmm. From the Western point of view, although we only see, you know, sort of the northern Baltic states as being the bits that actually border Russia, they probably feel that their border is a few hundred miles further west and actually borders Poland. So it's not a nice thing to think about, but that's sort of where the Russians are coming from on this. Yeah, as uh, both fans of strategy games, myself and Jonathan, I think describing Belarus as something of a Russian client state isn't too far off the mark in this particular case. Uh, When it comes to the... NATO's response here in terms of deterring Russian aggression and and also in the event of a a military conflict. One of the things that's been raised, Morgan, is that Germany, specifically one of NATO's, undoubtedly one of NATO's biggest players, has been historically and and in recent times as well more reluctant to take action, whether that's in terms of sending uh, weapons, defensive weaponry to Ukraine or in terms of imposing sanctions in the event of a conflict. Do you think that there's much truth to that view? Uh, And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, I think it's been very clear that Germany has been reticent to get involved in any meaningful way. Um, They have not sent any military aid. Um, They've set up a field hospital instead, um, working on that kind of humanitarian aspect should a conflict erupt. But they've also blocked Estonia from sending um, weapons and sending aid. And um, it just seems that as a leader in Europe and as a leader in NATO, they're taking a very um, poignant, apathetic stance. Um, and I think that's because of the increasing um, connections that Germany has to Russia, um, Nord Stream 2 being the obvious one. They're still going through approval of whether or not they're going to, to build the pipeline. Um, and that would bring Germany so much closer to Russia should that go ahead. Um, and it just seems that they are, again, being kind of um, pointed in their decision to not really do much. I know that their uh, the head of their Navy resigned recently because he made some comments about how it was ridiculous that Putin would want to invade um, and that Russia would invade. And he said that Putin demands and deserves respect and should be t- treated as an equal to uh, leaders of Western countries. Um, so there, there's a lot of, I think, internal uh, struggle in Germany of what they should do, but also they're clearly going to be facing increased pressures from other NATO countries to step in in a more meaningful way but whether or not they're willing to kind of get on Russia's bad side when they've got so much uh, economically laying on Russia with Nord Stream 2, I'm not sure. And that German reluctance to take more of a robust stance come back, comes back to a topic we've discussed on this podcast in recent weeks, which is the energy bills crisis. You mentioned Nord Stream 2. And of course, with Germany's uh, debatable, I think, at best decision, uh, I mean, it was a terrible decision from my mind to... Uh, wind down a lot of its nuclear power operations they've become even more dependent on uh, gas supplies from russia uh, and therefore you know the risk as it were of 
of a serious European gas crisis in the event of conflict and, and the ramifications of that are even worse than they would otherwise have been. Now, you know, even if, if Germany had a different situation than it does now with its nuclear power, it's still it's still a significant threat and a worry for, for European powers. But there's a good article in The Economist recently that made the, I mean, it's trying to be optimistic, saying, well, actually, uh, if, if, if Gazprom turned the taps off, then we could last for a few months. Um, and it would just be just be extremely high prices as opposed to actually running out of gas. Now, that's obviously you know, not great either, um, but, but obviously try to take a, an optimistic tone. I, Johnny, coming back to you on, on this kind of view of this from Ukraine's side of things, is there a serious capability to actually resist in the event of an invasion or is this likely to be a, a walkover, basically, if it does happen? Uh, so resist certainly. Um, I think there's, you know, we saw last year with the Afghan National Army that they sort of collapsed as soon as US support mm. ran out. I don't think that's the case in Ukraine. You know, they very much would would stand and fight. Now, since 2014, where the Ukrainian military was in an absolutely shocking state, they, I think at the start of 2014, they only had around 6,000 combat-ready soldiers. The Ukrainians have made um, significant improvements to their military but these have come at the same time as Russia has also improved theirs so although you're talking perhaps about you know the Ukrainians being able to deploy up to 200,000 men up uh, to 10 combat brigades you know mechanized actually a lot of that capability isn't quite there you know the manpower levels in the Ukrainian armed forces are around about 70% of what they're supposed to be but even those figures are a little bit shoddy because the Ukrainians for like very valid reasons like to inflate um, their military capability. There's also, you know, there's a lot of talk around how since 2014, lots of Ukrainian units have been, you know, in combat, you know, what if you have an armed force that's already been under fire, they're more likely to be better when they're fighting again. However, mm -hmm. the type of warfare that they've been fighting has primarily been sort of like neo trench warfare where they're sort of sitting in bunkers sniping at and quite small scale, you know, perhaps platoon or company. Um, size engagements. It has not been resisting or fighting a combined arms uh, invasion, which Russia has built up the ability to do so on the Ukrainian border. It hasn't been under like sustained long range artillery fire. It hasn't been under air assault, um, the kind which is now um, potentially able to deploy. So lots and lots and lots of different things can happen in war. So, you know, it's not necessarily going to be a complete walkover, but if you're going to undertake a full-scale military operation as the Russians, you're going to invade from multiple directions, you're going to take out the Ukrainians, you know, command, supply, logistics, uh, communications. Realistically, the, the Ukrainians are not going to be able to resist, and that is going to be eventually won by the Russians. It's just a case of the cost in terms of men and munitions, and I think the cost would be quite high, but I think that the Russians and Putin in particular, are quite willing to pay heavy manpower costs. Um, mm. Putin has used military force quite extensively throughout his rule, and I don't think he would be dissuaded at the moment from doing so again. It's it's interesting that that kind of willingness to, as you say, pay quite high costs in, in manpower and, and Russian lives, because from my perspective, I would have thought that the Russian media, if an invasion was in fact imminent, as seems to be potentially the case, they would prepare the Russian people for that possibility, right? And it doesn't seem like we've seen much in the way of 
pre-war propaganda in the Russian media. Why do you think that might be? Well, they didn't do it before the invasion in 2014, and they didn't do it before the deployment in Syria in 2015. I think over the last 20 or so years, the Russian public has become less important in how the Russian elite views its country. Um, certainly as it's centralized power under Putin, they sort of care, they seem to care a little bit less. This could be very different, of course, you know, if you go in and you have like 10, 20, 30,000 casualties um, on the Russian side alone, then, you know, public opinion could perhaps start to become a problem. Um, but even then, like, you know, high casualties are acceptable if you're winning. Your difficulty is how do you justify it to the uh, Russian people? Probably Putin has a better idea of how to do that than we do. It, it does seem like Russia have at least as far as they can prepared for that, right? They have quite substantial currency reserves, I think, specifically for this possibility. Now, it doesn't seem like that obviously they won't last forever and the economic damage done by such uh, expansion in, in sanctions would be enormous. Um, but we just have to hope I th and pray that this doesn't come to military conflict. Uh, and on that pessimistic note, I think it's time to move to our next, uh, also quite pessimistic, but not quite as bad topic for this podcast, which is the national insurance hikes. So we've talked about this before in this podcast, uh, as the national insurance hike was announced in September, but it's come back into the forefront of politics due to the rising cost of living crisis and its likely impact. Uh, the tax hike will increase national insurance by 1.25 percentage points for both the employee and the employer to increase funding for the NHS and social care. Recently, Jacob Rees-Mogg has advocated for its removal, and Chancellor Rishi Sunak has described it as the prime minister's tax. It seems as though the debate over this controversial tax is far from over. Uh, Johnny, I'll bring, bring you in first. Um, is national insurance actually a form of insurance? I mean, st I mean, strictly, it's not. It just goes towards paying current spending. I think when people say I paid in all my life, you know, they, they have a social contract in which they have done, but there's no sort of fund where, you know, this money is like being sent to sort of accumulate like it would in a, in a private pension. You know, it's a tax increase. And one that I, I th hopefully isn't uncontroversial to say on the Adam Smith Institute's podcast, don't really like tax increases. Um, Shocking. Particularly when we're not really certain what's going to happen with the world economy, I think it was a little bit premature to say when when almost every other country hasn't said this. By the way, the UK is sort of particularly when compared to the US is quite unique in saying we're going to put up taxes before the you know the, the pandemic was even over, um, mm -hmm. which now in, at least in the UK it does look like it's over. Although disruption in China and potentially in Russia is uh, something to worry about. We're going to put up taxes to deal with public spending when we're not even sure. I I thought it was I thought it was a bit premature. Yeah. So your your point about it not actually being insurance, I think you know everyone knows we're being a bit glib, but a lot of people don't actually realize that national insurance is just another uh, tax, and we actually call it um, a tax on employment because again the employee pays and the employer pays. Um, so you have a tax on jobs, a tax on churn, basically in, in the labor market. But also, it, it is kind of part of your uh, income tax bracket, and it, it is kind of wrapped into your wage packet. So I don't think people realize how much this actually impacts their uh, their general income. I, I also think it's not. You know, I don't think you should make all um, public policy by the impact it's going to have on the poorest on the poorest in the country. But in this case, it's doubly doubly worse for people who are on lower incomes as well. There's the backdrop of the the cost of living crisis to this that I think just highlights how just how bad it is when it comes to its its 
regressivity. Now, uh, the Resolution Foundation come out and said, oh, actually, 50% of this hike is going to be paid by the top 10%. Uh, that may be true. That's another 50% that isn't that's going to be paid by uh, people on low incomes and, and the middle class. And I think when you combine this, it's, you know, with the, the energy bills crisis that's coming in, there's the focus on people on low incomes, which I think is, is very apt in the sense that national insurance, you start to pay at a lower threshold than you do income tax, for example. So it does bite into those those lower incomes even more significantly. But there's also this this concern I think is is valid that it's going to be the the lower middle income uh, group that that is also screwed over by this and that has basically no cushioning from the effects of of energy bill increases that are going to come in in April. Uh, and actually, that's the group that I think we, we need to be just as concerned about when it comes to the overall health of the economy. As you said, Johnny, you know, you, you can't base all tax policy on the, the impact on the least well off, because ultimately, it's important to think about wealth creation from, uh, from all sectors of society. And this is going to seriously damage that it's going to seriously damage employment. And we've got this situation where public borrowing has been less than inspected. Uh, actually around in in the region of the cost of this national or rather the revenue raised by this national insurance hike so you've got the fiscal headroom of the fiscal wiggle room here certainly to delay it at least uh, and it does seem like at least in political terms that you know rishi still supports it but but the chancellor has distanced himself away from it as you said in the intro the prime minister's tax and he's come under pressure from quite senior conservatives, former ministers, and indeed this morning, the uh, business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has said that it's time to get rid of this. It's a very, very bad look, uh, more than anything else. I think they're, they're more concerned with the, the the optics of this potentially. But just on the economic case alone, it's clearly not uh, a good idea. And it's one of those taxes that it's not as transparent as it should be. And for my money should just be rolled into to income tax partially just for that transparency reason. So people know that uh, this isn't a kind of central fund that you pay into. It's not hypothecated towards uh, pensions or, or any form of, of welfare benefits or anything like that. It is just another tax. And, and certainly the, the motivations or the uh, explanation for why we were raising this tax is uh, to fund health and social care. Uh, but before that, before we get any money towards social care, it's all going to go to the NHS to fix the backlog. Now, I don't think, and I don't think anyone can seriously think that in three years, we're going to turn to the NHS and say, okay, we're taking this money back now. Can we have it? And the NHS will say, yeah, sure. We don't need it anymore. So the real reality here is that this money is just going to get lost in, in general NHS funding, and it's not actually going to go towards fixing the structural problem in social care. Um, so more broadly, is there a genuine need for tax hikes or something of the sort in the near term? Or should we let borrowing take the strain and focus on more longer term structural reforms? Well, for, for my money, I think there's a very good case that at the moment, there is room to make use of borrowing as opposed to tax hikes. Certainly in the short term, there's a good article from Roger Bootle, the economist in The Telegraph a few days ago that made this case quite well. Uh, and it's something that, that may surprise listeners of the podcast who have seen, I think, in the past, free market right very much be uh, come up in defense of, say, austerity measures um, post-financial crisis. But 
we are in a different situation. I think that the kind of concerns that you have about about interest rate rises in the future, whilst valid, if you if you dive down into some of the actual numbers and the projections uh, and look at where where this is actually coming from, I don't think that tax hikes are necessarily needed now. And even if they are needed in the future, and I think there is a case that at, at some point they're going to be needed, there are better ways to raise that revenue that are less economically damaging. They may not be politically as popular. I'm thinking, of course, of, uh, of VAT here and um, and more generally things like business rates reform towards more of a, a land-based system. These things are, strictly speaking, economically far less damaging than, than the corporation tax increase, than the national insurance increase, all of these these different measures the government is trying to scramble towards to raise more revenue. Uh, and it comes from, I think, very much this, we talked about this before and talked about it again, the treasury mindset, treasury brain, this idea that policy doesn't actually affect growth in any significant way, or that growth somehow isn't important anymore. And all that's needed is, is to balance the books and the short term, uh, this kind of static model of the economy rather than a dynamic one that takes into account, say, the the effects on growth of something like hiking national insurance. Uh, I, I think that's certainly true of, of how the Treasury assesses itself. Mm. The only objective is to balance the books because that's what we're concerned with. I think, it, I think a lot of the scepticism comes from a good place in terms of borrowing to invest because the British state seems almost uniquely bad amongst Western nations about investing in its own um, in its own silverware, right? You know, the, the best example pro- probably is British Rail in just quite how badly it was run. So when it comes to the NHS in particular, which we mentioned, you know, the, the amount of capital that goes into you know, maintaining NHS buildings, making sure there's enough laptops, etc., is low by Western standards, made even worse since 2014. And there's a lot of scepticism, I think, and it's relatively healthy that if we borrowed a load of money to invest in the in the NHS, and I mean invest in the mm. NHS, not paying for more nurses, I mean building more hospitals, making sure the hospitals that we've got are better ventilated, making sure that you know we have you know enough MRI scanners, like actual investment. It's it's a real shame that this government really did have an opportunity to do that. It had a lot of um, sort of like political buy-in, particularly around COVID. And it could have really made that like its mission. We are going to sort the NHS. That is going to require quite a bit, you know, quite a bit of investment, probably more than we've seen since at least the new Labour days. Um, but at least new Labour actually built new hospitals, which since, you know, since austerity has come in, we've, we've really, really struggled. And the NHS has got some of the oldest um, infrastructure um, and just really old, horrible buildings that no one really wants to be mm. in. Uh, and probably don't make you probably don't make you say your soul any better. Certainly, if you're um, in there for a long period of time. Well, what's interesting what you just said about the you know they could have used the pandemic as kind of the political impetus to fix the NHS. I think they kind of have done that for social care because everyone kind of realized over the pandemic how broken our social care system is, um, how fundamentally it's disconnected. You know, hard to find staff. Uh, not great outcomes obviously sending people back into care homes with covid was not a great move and kind of put a magnifying glass on the actual structure of the care system but again the solution is to in three years give them some more money there's no structural reforms there's no actually root and branch um building new care homes reorienting the way we offer private insurance any of these things which actually might make a sustainable solution and i do think that's that is as you say, it's a problem when we just kind of endlessly throw money at things without actually thinking about 
what is a genuine investment, which will get us better outcomes. Mm. It's it's a shame because if you think about what's happened over the last you know two years, you've, the Conservative government was not elected in 2019 to, to basically say to people, you have to stay on your home, right? There was a huge amount of political like room to maneuver, particularly at the start of the crisis, when the reason we initially went into lockdown is because the NHS fundament, fundamentally couldn't cope. You know, capacity building is boring and it means you've got to hire more managers and it means you've got to do boring things like building hospitals, which actually, you know, isn't really very sexy and it's not the smart person solution. You know, the smart person solution to COVID is like human challenge trials for like for day one vaccines, which we should have done already, you know, for mRNA vaccines, like we should have done that all anyway, right? We could have done all the smart person stuff, which we did to some extent, but we didn't really go for it. But we could have done it alongside like the really boring stuff and, you know, the sort of the stuff that is is difficult because it's no one really wants to do it like making sure that you've got COVID-only hospitals, which we could, which, you know, we we did build for. Uh, but then we didn't have the staff for them because we didn't want to go out and say, we need to hire effectively a reserve army of nurses. We didn't want to do that. And we didn't want to, for whatever reason, put genuine effort into reforming, the, in particular, the capital side of the NHS, which is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get a bed, mm-hmm. aside from the fact that there aren't enough managers in the NHS and they're not well adequately paid enough. So back to uh, the national insurance hike, uh, before we wrap up this section, just do we think it's going to be scrapped? Do we think it's going to be delayed? Will they see the light? I do, yeah. I think they've got quite a bit of room for it this morning. I think Boris will, uh, he'd do quite a lot, actually, if it keeps him in his, uh, if it keeps him in his, his post. Yeah, if, if he wants red meat. <laughs> they have been known to intern before, so. And it's... It, it shouldn't have been done in the first place. I think there is, you know, there is quite a bit of scope for it. I think in the, you know, so going down the sort of list of things in order to get to an outcome, if there was a new prime minister, would this be one of their priorities? I suspect it might be because you do want a little bit of buy-in initially, but that would be if they didn't go for a, another election, which wouldn't that be fun? You mean one of their priorities would be to scrap it? Yeah, I think so. It's just like, it's such an easy win, like straight yeah. off. Like, it's not like the first thing I do in office is like put taxes up. Um, I'm not sure that a uh, that, that is a great pitch to either Tory MPs or to Tory members. Uh, this is the first thing I want to do as your new Conservative Prime Minister. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that there's a, a fairly high chance of there being a, a U-turn on this, certainly given the, the recent figures on borrowing that seems to give at least political, if not economic cover for, for a temporary pause to this, um, the kind of the, the 2022 to 2023 tax year uh, hike was premised on this idea of using the revenue to to fix the NHS backlog. And given that we're in a better fiscal situation than than was expected, I think that there's the political cover there. And it does seem like more and more uh, parts of the Conservative Party are making this, uh, making a fight out of this. They're not going to just be quiet and, and let it go through. Uh, and when you see the noises coming from the very top, the cabinet and indeed the chancellor seemingly rowing back somewhat on, on some of the rhetoric, uh, even though he, he may want to keep it privately, I think that we could see uh, a rowback on this and partially perhaps as a, a desperate attempt to to keep hold of the Prime Minister's current position, but we'll have to wait and see. It, it does make me worry ever so slightly that, that Rishi has sort of proposed this tax and then at the first sign of trouble, you know, mm. I mean, it is genuine trouble and it's not a good tax, but it's not a good, it's not a good tax increase. 
but at the first sign of trouble is like i i would i hope that they u-turn but it does seem a little bit theresa may like to me like the first sign of trouble okay right okay i did that wrong and i'm just going to row back mm-hmm. on it and i think if you demonstrate that before you you know before you even uh attempt to become <laughs> prime minister i think people might take that as a sign of weakness but who knows we're getting we're getting ahead of ourselves with uh who might be the next conservative party leader all right well i think with that we will wrap up this section and i will throw it back to dan to uh bring us to our last topic of the podcast Across the world and indeed in the UK, businesses are moving away from a sole focus on profit to pursue social goals as well, sometimes termed woke capitalism. Top Unilever shareholder Terry Smith recently criticised the firm for overly focusing on corporate social responsibility goals to the detriment of returns, whilst M&Ms have recently undergone a much publicised inclusive rebrand. Despite woke capitalism being deemed as insincere by the left and somewhat counterproductive by the right, more and more businesses are undoubtedly incorporating these sorts of policies into their general goals. And I think probably the first question that is important to answer is where does this actually come from? Why do you think that we have started or certainly seen an increase in recent years of these kind of initiatives, whether it's values-based marketing or it's if you think about say airlines Lufthansa and KLM basically telling their customers not to fly um, despite the fact that that's our entire business model do you think this is something that's coming from from consumer demand and actually it's just businesses responding to the the demands of their potential customers and market or is there something else going on here maybe going to you first on this Johnny um, I think a part of it is uh, sort of the growth of sort of um, social justice slash woke sort of movements from around about 2012 2013 14 and eventually the people who were sort of socialized while they were growing up uh, with these sorts of attitudes and that this is important things to do are now in the workplace and you know they're in the workplaces of some of the world's biggest companies um, I don't think go woke, go broke is necessarily. I, I don't think we've really seen like a company like completely implode over um, over a sort of more inclusive or more woke. I hate that term, mm. by the way. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I, I really dis- I despise it. Not because of the connotations. I just think that it's it's such a misappropriation of the original term, which I think is very very clever. But yeah, we haven't actually seen any companies like sort of like explode explode i don't think can you think of any example no not off the top of my head i mean morgan no i i agree with johnny i don't actually think that go woke go broke is a thing i think that it is a very uh, particular strategy that companies are taking in a lot of ways to to garner more customers like if you look at lush i don't know if either of you are familiar with lush but they are a um bombs. They do the bath bombs. Yeah, exactly. But their whole thing is they're incredibly social, social justice oriented. They have entire products where all the profits go to certain things. They're vegan. They're against animal testing, all of these things. And they've got a very loyal fan base for that, that reason. You know, Whole Foods is like seen as like better than another supermarket because they've got more organic stuff in it. You know what I mean? So you kind of get these companies that do build a brand on being more socially conscious and there will be consumers that are for that. Um, and I think if a brand like Nike or Nike, as you say, wants to go and, you know, be more socially conscious and some of their consumers will, you know, burn their sneakers or whatever it is, they might get more consumers. And that's a business choice that they're making. And I think that's totally fine. I think it's well within their rights to make that choice as a business. 
What I think the issue is, is when the government or regulators are building in these end goals into their regulation of the industry. So, you know, uh, encouraging the financial services industry to, you know, be more green in their investments or whatever it is. That's where I think you kind of create um, perverse incentives that aren't business oriented, they're social oriented, and maybe the businesses aren't best placed to deliver those services, um, but they're being told by the regulator or the government that they have to. Um, so I think if if you're trying to attract more consumers for your product by taking a certain angle, go for it. I haven't seen that it's not a good strategy yet. You will always get people who like or dislike you. Um, but I think the bigger issue is if we're building in those um, goals or strategies into the regulator, that's that's where I take issue. Yeah, I, I think I've, I share a, quite a similar perspective on this, which is that when, say, values-based marketing, uh, pursuing social goals as a business is, is part of your general business strategy, uh, then that can't be a problem, right? You know, it's one of those things, let the market decide whether that's a successful business strategy or not. And as you said earlier, Johnny, it doesn't seem like there's much evidence that Go Woke, Go Broke is actually true. The studies that I've seen tend to suggest that there's not much impact on bottom line profits either way when it comes to companies pursuing more of a say, socially conscious uh, marketing strategy or business strategy or whatnot. Where my concern comes in is when those actions are in response to the threat of potential regulation. And that's something that we're increasingly seeing, not just in, in financial services, as Morgan mentioned, but elsewhere as well, where even though there isn't explicit regulation saying you must meet X and Y targets in your activities, there's lots of talk between regulators and big firms about the importance of doing this with this kind of nod, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, that if you don't, then we might get tougher on you so they're therefore responding to ultimately not consumer demand but regulator demands i just had an example there i feel like carbon offsetting for airlines is a good example of that because i think i, I don't imagine that consumer pressure was driving them to to add these carbon offsetting you know goals where they're going to plant trees or whatever it is for every flight you take but i do genuinely think that that could have been something that down the line a regulator was going to impose on airlines saying you need to be more carbon efficient, carbon neutral, and carbon offsetting is the way that you should do that. So I genuinely think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that that's part of the regulation. Yes, but it probably could have been something that they saw coming in the line and just glommed onto it early. In some ways, that's a policy failure, right? Because we haven't got a, an effective broad-based carbon tax that, that, that prices in that point. So instead, we're seeing we're seeing airlines respond to the threat of kind of piecemeal regulation by by doing these sort of things and not kind of letting, as we argue in our paper out today, capitalism after COVID from our, our former head of research now at the IEA, Matthew Lesh, and uh, former co-host of this podcast, he makes the point that it seems like governments are straying outside, very much outside the realm of their own competence in trying to to kind of get more involved in business activities. Well, quite, yeah, many such cases. I don't know if you've heard of libertarianism or not, Johnny, or perhaps free market economics, but uh, maybe there's something to this. Wow. <laughs> uh, but but also the businesses are kind of straying outside uh, their, their broad, I guess, societal remit. Um, now, I, I guess I don't see a problem in theory with, with businesses being part of a solution to a particular social problem. Uh, my kind of skepticism comes in when a lot of the time, uh, I think Helen Lewis called it the, the iron law of work capitalism, that it tends to be very cheap 
signals when it comes to this sort of thing so you know you're handing out rainbow badges at one event and of course you're still operating in in saudi arabia and consumers i think see through that um whether or not that has a big impact on on profits is another story but what i think it does do is it breeds a certain skepticism towards businesses because they're claiming to be you know part of the solution to broad social problems but when it comes to at least some of their actions, uh, in some cases, they're clearly not able to address those social problems. And actually, they're, they're kind of failing by their own measures. I, th- I think it says quite a bit about, you know, the value of advertising, right? That I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if most people are not aware of like some of the more egregious um, kind of social justice campaigns by, um, by companies. Um, I also think that it is, you know, like there's been a lag in sort of like, you know, this sort of ideology becoming quite prominent mm. in uh, Western universities, there might actually be some lag in this. And actually you might see in like five, 10 years time, no, actually everybody is a little bit sick of having like every single company operating like Ben and Jerry's, which is except, you know, which is probably at the you know real left end of the distribution when it comes to activism by companies. But yeah, I mean, you know, in the UK, we now have like gender pay gap, uh, reporting guidelines which are you know probably not very useful um anyway uh but there is you know a, there is an internal cost certainly to getting the data uh, you might have to remind me if it's a proposal or whether they're actually bringing in the ethnicity pay gap data which i think would be even more tricky to do and even more you know even more of a cost and you know there's two regulations that you probably do have to spend someone in that company has to spend quite a bit of time putting together which is you know which is a cost it's not a good thing i think that would be quite an easy thing to junk yeah i'm pretty sure that's still a proposal in terms of some of the the more detailed reporting um but it, it, i remember it being you know talked about a lot in the may era and, and not so much after that but but there are companies that do it there are companies that do ethnicity breakdown uh, you know proportion of their board and and senior management and stuff so there are companies that are already doing that again this is something that i saw in the wake of the black lives matter movement is every company was on social media putting out their racial uh, breakdown in in their um, companies and saying you know this percentage of our senior staff is is African American this percent is Asian American all of that so um, you definitely see these social movements leading to companies examining how they operate which I don't think is a bad thing you you also may end up in a situation where you end up people examining their own ethnicity in order to fit it mm-hmm. so you end up with you know I, I don't know if you're familiar at all with affirmative action in Brazil but it had very much the opposite effect of what was intended um, with people claiming, you know, sort of Elizabeth Warren style, like very, very small amounts of like, you know, ancestry and using it to say, well, actually, I am a person of X, Y, Z, which, yeah, these things, you know, you sort of you mandate them or, you know, you you say to companies, well, we need to bring these things in and they can have like quite strange consequences which i don't think uh, is necessarily the intention yeah it feels like there's a there's a, an information gap here that hopefully will come out in time or will be solved in time when it comes to the sort of issues that i think we're all familiar with in terms of gender pay gap reporting ethnicity pay gap reporting lack of controls for other variables uh maybe defining a, a certain ethnic group in a way that's not particularly productive so say just talking about BAME um, and there's actually been quite a bit of pushback against that acronym from people who are more kind of aligned with uh, with progressive views on that point precisely because it doesn't 
really give a particularly accurate or useful picture of, of what the situation is like in companies um, when it comes to ethnicity and, and pay gaps and things like this. So hopefully that's something that with with greater, I think, greater scrutiny from the center right amongst other places that companies that are doing that will do so in a way that that's more useful um, or provide data that, that isn't just about kind of satisfying you know social media or, or whatnot it's making a real difference or it's it's at least tackling the the actual underlying issues that, that are being discussed which which unfortunately i think in particular regards to the gender pay gap it doesn't do very no. often you know the fundamental reason why the gender pay gap exists is because of motherhood and i think it's potentially true that we just don't compensate mothers enough um an excellent piece in works in progress which is a a online magazine about how as a society we just don't give mothers enough we just don't compensate them enough i think that's you know there's a pretty strong argument actually and if we you know there are many many problems to fix in in the west and in this country in particular but certainly you know we we really need to have a serious examination of how we get people having more children um if that's what the gender pay gap ends up helping with i think that's good unfortunately i think it's just used to sort of talk about you know discrimination which doesn't exist or discrimination which wage discrimination which exists which is not caused by what people are assuming it's caused by right and and that sort of that sort of mistake can often lead to the wrong policy prescription certainly the wrong focus you know the fact that motherhood has not been examined as one of if not the constituent part of say the gender pay gap means we're not talking about uh say lowering childcare costs by liberalizing uh, child care child to care ratios in the uk we're not talking as much as we should about the impact that restricting housing supply has on the cost of family formation various things uh, around this and, and it diverts the conversation away from things that would actually help and improve people's lives yeah well on that note i think it's probably time to bring this episode of the pin factory to a close thank you very much to my wonderful co-host and our director of operations morgan Schondelmeyer, and our special guest and excellent Warzone buddy as well as asi fellow and super forecaster jonathan ketson if you like what you've heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and we will see you next week for yet more banter analysis mm-hmm.